A few months ago, I was having dinner with a parent's friends. Old school activists, super political people in the 1970s. These days, they were upset about the current political dynamics, and they asked me, why don't we see young people being political? Why aren't young people political these days? My answer was that young people are political. We're very political. Our engagement in politics just doesn't always look the way it did in the 1970s. Modern-day protests and powerful political disruptions are the subject of journalist Sarah Jaffe's new book, Necessary Trouble, America in Revolt. The book is excerpted in the chaos issue of Bitch as it illuminates and appreciates the values of intentional chaos. My name is Sarah Jaffe. I am a uh, once and future Bitch magazine contributor and a independent journalist and the author of uh, Necessary Trouble, Americans in Revolt. And I like that because it's a clear counterpoint to seeing protests as a problem. Like people think of protesters as annoying or they're inefficient or they're dangerous. They should just stop. What kind of trouble do you see as necessary? what isn't necessary at this moment? It's really hard to like go back to what I thought was necessary four weeks ago, a month ago, before this election. Um, And looking now, it's like, oh my God, everything is terrible. But the question of when people sort of turn to disruptive protest is when things are intolerable, right? And that could mean whether um, you have a, 12-year-old kid killed by a police officer, or when you have um, mass foreclosures by banks that don't even necessarily own the mortgage on the home that they're foreclosing on, or you have, you know, 42% of the country makes less than $15 an hour. Um, Any form of sort of intolerable conditions that aren't being addressed by the political methods that we're told we're supposed to use, right, which is basically you go out and vote every one, two, four years, um, and we see how how well that's worked out for us um, in this most recent election. Can you tell me about how you got started on the book? I know you were going to a lot of protests, but when did you start to see that there was a pattern here? Yeah, I started, I got the idea for this book um, way back, sort of after the peak of Occupy Wall Street in 2012. And it was, you know, I've been thinking, and I I have basically been a full-time journalist entirely in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. I had done some work before that, but it wasn't my full-time job. Um, And so, right, it seemed to me that something really drastic had happened there, that the people in power were really not grappling with its impact. And of course, they they weren't because they don't have to be because they're largely insulated from that actual impact. Um, They were not the ones being foreclosed on. And so with that, thinking about the the situation that people were responding to, which was this, you know, dramatic shift in how we think about the political and economic system we live under, um, there was also a shift back towards more direct action, um, dramatic and disruptive protest tactics from the sort of, you know, if, if you think about the, the protests against the Iraq war, for instance, they were very big in many cases, right? You had some of the largest mass marches the world had ever seen against the Iraq war. And that didn't stop it. It didn't work, right, in that way. Um, And so people have turned back to tactics that are, you know, as you say, that many people will condemn as, as unnecessary and inappropriate, but to them are the only way to actually get power to pay attention. Um, And you know, wield power back against the people who have it. 
So how do you see protest working differently today than it did in our parents' generation? Um, I mean, that's an interesting question because some of the tactics that we're seeing used again now do really come out of the 60s period, right? Um, you're seeing the revival of things like sit-ins and sit-down strikes. All those down strikes come from, you know, our grandparents and great-grandparents period um, during the Great Depression, which was, of course, another period of uprisings in response to massive economic crisis. Um, so, you know, on, on that level, there are a lot of these tactics are things that that come out of periods of, of other periods of uprisings in American history. On another level, you know, we have the internet now, this fabulous thing that's allowing us to talk to each other right now, and that allows you to go on miscellaneous social media and talk to thousands and thousands of people very quickly and very easily. And so a lot of the movements of the recent years have really been sort of shaped like the internet is how I think of it. They're shaped like a network. Um, so you have things like Occupy Wall Street that spread really um, horizontally, right, where you had people who saw what was going on in New York, in Portland and in Chicago and in, you know, Fort Wayne, Indiana, say, okay, we're going to have an Occupy in our town and we're going to do largely the same thing, but we're going to tailor it to the conditions, the locations and the particular issues that we're dealing with where we live. Um, and that kind of, of possibility has been really interesting to watch. And then you also see you know, when something happens in a, a very local um, issue, like the police shootings that have kicked off protests nationwide, again, you know, you saw when um, the police officer who killed Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, was not um, indicted, there were protests around the country that kicked off the same day. It didn't take weeks. It didn't take, you know, sort of somebody from Ferguson going to New York and saying like, hey, we should have a protest here. People just did it. They just responded that quickly because they felt connected to this thing that was going on somewhere else. Sarah, I know you spent a lot of time at different protests and involved in activist communities around the country. So can you talk about how young people are involved in politics and how that engagement is different than it was a generation ago? Yeah, I mean, anybody who asks after this election why young people aren't engaged in politics apparently missed the fact that there were high school students walking out of their classrooms around the country in like Phoenix, Arizona and Omaha, Nebraska in the week after the election. Um, young people are very involved. It's just that, again, this this idea of like what's involved in politics um, is very, very narrow in this country. And it's deliberately kept narrow, right? You are supposed to go out and vote and you get what you vote for or you get what you didn't vote for and you know, many cases, not just the most recent one. Um, and you are kind of just expected to like sit down and shut up if you don't like it. Um, and then, you know, on the flip side, there are people who can't vote, right? When we're talking about very young people who are under 18 who can't vote, we're talking about people who are undocumented, we're talking about people who are disenfranchised because they're convicted felons. There are a lot of people who literally cannot do the thing that you were told is the only way you can get involved in politics. But those people do all sorts of other things um, in order to put pressure on the political system. And so, you know, when we talk about like what is being involved in politics, on this book tour, a lot of people have said to me like, well, when are those Occupy kids gonna like come back and get involved in politics? Like what those people mean is like, why aren't they running for office? And, you know, I mean, that's an interesting question, especially um, after the amount of you know, engagement with young people in like the Bernie Sanders campaign, you know, are people going to see more people running for office? Um, is there going to be a new sort of wave of people who think that maybe that is a way to, to wield power? 
But also, you know, you can be an officer in your labor union. If you're a union member, you can be a person who organizes meetings in your community. You can organize a rally, an action. I think your book really acts as a history of the present moment. I could see it being assigned as reading in 30 years about what activism was like in 2015. So what patterns have you seen emerge in American protests that feel significant to you? As soon as you say this is what protest looks like, um, as soon as I can say that, then somebody else can also say that. Um, then the targets of protest can also say that, and then they know what to expect and they know what to shut down. So um, one of my favorite examples of this is the the mic check um, that people at Occupy Wall Street used, right? And the, the people's mic where people would um, repeat what somebody said in order to make sure the entire crowd could hear it. And this was a tactic that really evolved out of the fact that um, they weren't allowed amplified sound in Zuccotti Park. And so it came out of necessity, but then evolved for people actually using it to disrupt things. So people would go to a meeting. The first time I saw it really effectively used was at the panel for education policy in New York City, where a bunch of Occupy activists went to this meeting and everybody just stood up one by one and would start to say something. And then everybody else who was with the group in the room would repeat it and they would sort of get dragged out one by one. But there were so many of them that you couldn't do that. And it really, in that moment, effectively shut down the meeting. And a year later, I went with a group of people to the Morgan Stanley shareholder meeting, um, the big investment bank, and they tried the same tactic. And basically the bankers just waited for them to be done. And then they went on with their meeting and it did not disrupt anything anymore because they, you know, they knew what was going to happen. They had seen the videos, they knew what the tactic was and they weren't, um, you know, they were no longer really confused and disrupted by it. So, you know, we, we've watched tactics like this um, roll over and over again. You know, there's a few things that, that never go out of style for good reason, like the strike um, refusing to work remains a very powerful um weapon and really something that had really, really declined over the last 30 years, only to, you know, it's it's beginning a comeback now with unions like the Chicago Teachers Union. So, and that's a more traditional strike where you go out and you refuse to work until you get the, um, the bargain that you want from the employer. So you pointed to one concrete way that the tactics of Occupy have filtered out to impact activism today still. People sometimes say that Occupy failed or was pointless or didn't do anything, but I don't feel that way. I feel like it's informed our culture in significant ways, both in giving experience to people who weren't previously involved in politics and in informing the national conversation around um, economic issues. So I'm just wondering, what, what do you think? Do you see ways that Occupy still impacts our society today or not really? No, it, it certainly is... You know, it's present in the fact that now, you know, saying the 99% and the 1% is almost a cliche, right? Everybody talks about the 1% um, as sort of the, you know, the, the the concept that is at the base of why people are angry, um, that there's, you know, the 1% of the population more or less who has um, most of the money and all of the power. Um, and then there are questions of, of um again, of tactics of structure, you know, there were a lot of critics of things like the general assembly model and the, um, the idea of a, you know, quote unquote leaderless movement, but we've watched those, again, these tactics sort of be, um, 
modified and changed and shifted. So when you look at the movement for black lives, there are a lot of um, organizations that do have leadership. Um, they have sort of explicit leadership, but they still also are very um, free flowing and that a lot of people can come in and just, you know, you can organize something. You don't need to, again, you don't need to go ask somebody for permission to do this, to hold an action, to hold a march, to call a rally, to call a meeting. You just do it. And that is, again, you know, it connects to the idea that the internet is the way these things spread now, but also just that, you know, people are really reacting to a moment where it feels like a tiny, tiny group of people have all the power. That was Sarah Jaffe. Her book is called Necessary Trouble, America in Revolt. You can read an excerpt of it in the Chaos print issue of Bitch. Popaganda is produced by nonprofit independent Bitch Media. Our feminist response to pop culture is entirely funded by our community. Love our work and want to pitch in? Become a member. Join hundreds of fellow listeners as a member of the podcast Pollinators. And when you do, you'll receive a special mug, a subscription to Bitch Magazine in print and digital, a snazzy sticker, and Listen Bitch, a brand new monthly roundup of all of our podcast shows and music reviews, straight to your inbox. Become a pollinator today at bitchmedia.org slash pollinators. Pollinators.